Well, good morning, church. My name is Adam Young. I'm the lead pastor here at Element, and we're so excited that you're here um, to as we continue our study in the book of James. Now, if you're new with us, or maybe you have uh, been here for a while, but you've missed a couple of the last few weeks, let me just catch you up to where we are. Um, we are towards the end of chapter 2 in the letter of James. And if you don't know, James is the senior leader of the early church in the first century. Um, he was the senior pastor, the senior leader of the church in Jerusalem during the first half of the first century up until about the early 60s. And because he was in Jerusalem, that was like sort of the mothership. That was the big church um, that kind of... Uh, really sponsored a lot of ministry and missionaries out into all other parts of the Roman Empire. And so James, as the senior leader there, is in many ways one of the senior leaders of the early Christian movement. What also makes James as a person interesting is that he was the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, Mary and Joseph obviously were quite surprised when the angel showed up and said that Mary was going to give birth to Jesus, to the Son of God, the Messiah, the long-awaited anointed one, uh, before Joseph and Mary had ever wed. And so as a virgin, she gives birth to Jesus, but her and Joseph go on to get married and have a very normal relationship and uh, married life together, and they have kids James is one of the kids that Mary and Joseph had together, which makes James Jesus's half-brother. And so um, we get this unique perspective from someone who knew Jesus more than probably any of us could. Now, I want you to think about it for a minute. What would it be like to have Jesus as your half-brother? I mean, you can imagine how frustrating that would probably be. I mean, because you would never live up to his, like to, to the shadow that, that he put out. You would never live up to the way that he lived his life. You can imagine his parents and his teachers and, and everything, everyone else in his life was always wondering, like, why can't you be more like your brother, Jesus? And as most of us would experience and feel, we wouldn't like it, and we would probably have a little anger or bitterness towards Jesus. And that's exactly what we see with James and his other brothers. That they actually, they were impressed with what Jesus could do, but they were not convinced. They were not convinced that Jesus really was this special anointed Messiah from their creator. Until they saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. The day that they met Jesus resurrected from the dead, it changed everything and James went from being a skeptic of Jesus to a fanatic, to being one of the, the most passionate, bold followers and teachers and preachers of Jesus after seeing his own half-brother resurrected from the dead. And because James went through such a radical life transformation, he writes this letter in the early 40s of the first century to churches throughout the Roman Empire to encourage them in their faith and also to challenge them. Because James has experienced such a radical transformation in his own life that he wants to see others experience this same radical transformation. And because James is so passionate, he doesn't hold back. James is not worried about being politically correct. 
James is not worried about protecting your feelings. James just wants to share truth. And he wants to see that truth take root in his audience's lives and to affect every part of how they live. And so we've been going verse by verse in a journey through James's letter. And so we are in chapter 2, and we're going to begin looking at chapter 2, and we're going to start at verse 14, because we left off at verse 13 last week. And so James 2, starting in verse 14, it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And so what we're going to do this week is exactly what we do every week. After having read our passage for today, we're going to break it down into smaller verse chunks We're going to read it, and we're just going to think about it for a minute. We're going to reflect on it. We're going to ask some questions and allow what James has to say to impact our hearts and our minds. And so we're going to start with just the first verse in this section. And James is going to ask two questions, which he assumes his audience knows the obvious answer. And he starts by saying, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works. Can that faith save him? So before we move any further this morning, I want you just to imagine that James here is asking you these exact questions and he's expecting you to answer. I want you to take a minute to just pause and to think How would you answer these questions? So really, what good is it if someone says they have faith in God, but that faith never shows itself in how they live their life? What good is that? Then James asks another question. Can that faith save him? Is the kind of faith that's purely intellectual, that makes no difference in who you are or how you live, is that kind of faith 
powerful enough to save someone. For James, the answer is no. That should cause all of us to to want to pause for a minute and to do some internal reflecting, some self-evaluation. Because if there is some kind of faith, some kind of faith that won't save, then that should cause all of us to examine our hearts and our lives and go, is that the kind of faith I have? Could that be me? And I think that's exactly what James wants us to do is to stop and to think and take this seriously and reflect. Because how we answer these questions and what we do about it has eternal implications. And so what James is going to do next is he's actually going to give us like a little mini case study to prove his point. He assumes his audience in their minds have, I mean this is sort of rhetorical question, so because he's writing this in a letter, it's not like his audience can actually answer him, but he assumes they're going to give an answer, and now he wants to give a, to a defense for the point he's trying to make. So he's going to give just a practical, real-world example. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? It's just like the question he asked before. What good is it if someone says they have faith, but there's no evidence? There's no works. There's nothing that comes out of them in their lives to show it. And as a case study, he says, think of it this way. If a friend were to be stuck outside, with no place to stay come January or February when the temperatures are dangerously cold here. They haven't eaten in days. What value is there in saying, I hope you, I wish you warmth and lots of food if you don't actually do something about it? Because if you don't do something about it, what it shows is that you don't actually care at all if they're warm or well-fed. And that's the point he's trying to make, is that your lack of actions actually reveal the truth beyond what it is that you may want to claim. Then we move on to verse 17. And here is James' bold, bold statement. I told you, he's not going to be politically correct. He is not going to try to protect any of our feelings. And he says, so faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So regardless of what you say, regardless of what you mentally or intellectually agree to, in the end, 
what you do is the litmus test for what you really believe. Because if, if you don't actually do something about your friend who's in desperate need, it shows that no matter what you say, you actually don't care. And for James, if, if there is no outward expression of this faith you claim in Jesus, then there is no real faith. Or what faith you claim to have is actually dead. Let's keep moving. Because I know none of us are uncomfortable enough yet. Verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So Paul, as he's already asked some rhetorical questions of his audience, anticipating their answers, he's now anticipating the opposition that he would get to this kind of argument. He's anticipating that someone is going to say, okay, okay, fine, James. I have faith, you have works. Fine. We each are just a little different. James says, I'll show you my faith by my works. Because what he's trying to elevate is that it's not all about works. Works is not what matters most. Rather, works is what reveals the truth. James is saying, it's not that you have faith and I have works. It's that I have faith, but I can actually prove that I do by what I do. And then he uses this odd example. He's like, oh, you have faith, so you believe that God is one? Congratulations. Because even the demons believe that. I mean, think about it for a minute. And think about during even Jesus' earthly ministry, the stories that we read about in the Gospels, when Jesus is traveling around and he's teaching and he's, he's, uh, he's comforting He's healing those who are hurting. He's setting free the captives. And how routinely along Jesus' journey, he, he encounters demonic forces that are trying to work against him. Do you think those demonic forces know that God exists? Do you think those demonic forces know that Jesus has power? You think those demonic forces know that Jesus rose from the dead? Better believe they do. Because they're the ones who wanted to hold him in the grave. But they had no power over him. They're the ones who wanted to oppress people. But had to obey Jesus' very words. James is trying to make the point, hey, just claiming to believe in God, claiming to know some facts, it's not enough. So what is James trying to prove here? What is he trying to do with this demonic example? What he's trying to say is that there are two different kinds of faith. 
There's a faith that believes historical facts and information that agrees to certain principles. And then there's saving faith. There's faith that wraps up your whole heart and mind and life into it. There's faith that changes who you are. And that kind of faith works itself out into our lives. Let's move on to verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? I told you, James is so kind. That faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, this is a phrase that makes most of us uncomfortable. And I know why. Because on the surface, it seems like James here is trying to counter what we learn from Paul. What many of us have been taught our whole lives. Now this is not going to be on the screen for you, but let me read to you Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 from the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So which one is it? Is it that we're saved by faith and not by works, or is, or, or is it that we're saved by faith and by works? And why don't these two individuals agree? Well, when you take verses out of context, on the surface it can appear that they're at odds with one another. But as you dig deeper into what both Paul and James are saying, you actually realize they're teaching the exact same truth, but presenting two sides of the same coin. James is not trying to communicate to us or teach us that we have to work for our salvation. That we have to earn God's love or a position with him. Or that we have to do certain things in order to be saved. James is actually in agreement with exactly what Paul is teaching. But James is trying to get us to go to, a, to the next level. But James is not countering Paul's teaching on the truth of the core of the gospel, that we are saved by faith, and that it is not anything that we can do to earn our right into God's approval or his presence. And let me show that to you. First of all, now if we go back to verse 18, notice that James is going to talk about how works Show or reveal faith, not produce it. Number two, James is going to use the demons as an example. They have faith, but they don't have saving faith. And how do we know that? Because of the way they live. Because, because of the actions that are part of their life. 
The third reason we know that James is not countering Paul here is because he used Abraham as an example. And here, James is actually going to quote directly from Genesis 15, 6, talking about Abraham, and he says, Abraham what? Believed. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so if James is trying to make the argument here that we are not saved by faith alone, that works are necessary either to create faith or for salvation, his own Old Testament quote counters the point that he would be trying to make. And here's the other reason. Is that there are more than one way to understand and meaning behind the word justify. And we can, we can understand it how we use it in our own language. On one hand, justify can be used in a legal sense to declare someone as innocent or as righteous. But the other way we can use justify is it can be used to affirm something or to prove something. Think about the statement, the ends the end justifies the means, right? The idea that, that something can be justified, it can be proved or affirmed by something else, or, or he justified his position with, with his defense. Paul says we are justified by faith alone in the first sense, in the legal sense, that our status and position with God It happens because of faith. It happens because of a faith that God indwells inside of us. Paul said, we are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves. Even the faith required is a gift of God. In the legal sense, we are declared innocent or righteous by faith and faith alone. James, on the other hand, uses justify in the other sense. That our faith is justified by our works. That our faith proves or show, excuse me, our works prove or show that our faith is genuine and real and saving. That our works affirm or deny the presence of faith. In our lives. Same word, but two very different meanings and connotations behind them. In both Paul and James's teaching, they agree that we are saved by faith, but that works are an obvious and necessary outflow of saving faith. Both Paul and James agree on that. After I just read to you Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for we are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, so that no one may boast. And it is not a result of works. Here's verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So Paul and James agree that we are saved by faith, but that genuine saving faith works itself out into how we live our lives 
And they agree on the order that it goes faith, salvation, good works. But even Paul would agree with James that anyone who's genuinely been saved will show it by how they live their lives. Let's look at our last section for this morning. James 2, 25 through 26. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. And so here, um, James is just referring to another story from the Old Testament. You may or may not be familiar with this story. Um, We won't go into it today, but it's another example of someone whose works justified their faith, that their faith was proven by their works, that their faith had enough power to work its way out into their lives. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James is very clear that those who are genuinely saved, their lives will clearly be marked because of it. A genuine Christian will be marked in certain ways. And those marks are identifiable in how they live their lives, in their actions. If there are no actions, James would say that faith is dead. That it's not the kind of faith that will save you. That should cause all of us to just stop for a minute and to think about our lives. Not because there's a certain kind or a certain amount of works that would then put us into a new category of saved, but rather if there aren't the works there, then it shows what kind of faith we have. The answer isn't more works or better works The answer is better faith. The answer is a different kind of faith. Not the faith that agrees to just the mere existence of God or to some intellectual agreement points. The kind of faith that consumes you. The kind of faith that James experienced. Because before Jesus died, James was impressed with his brother, but not convinced. He knew Jesus could do some pretty powerful things. James saw the miracles with his own eyes. James had heard the stories. You know Joseph and Mary had sat around the dinner table and talked about when the angel came and visited them and announced the birth of Jesus. and He knew all that. He knew all far more information about Jesus than you and I ever will, at least on this side of heaven. He could tell us about what Jesus was like as a teenager. He could tell us all the little things about Jesus' mannerisms. He He knew more information about Jesus than us, but it wasn't enough for him until the day he met resurrected Jesus. Till the day he met his brother raised from the grave and his whole life was transformed. That's the kind of faith James wants us to have. That kind of faith that doesn't just believe that Jesus exists but that gives him everything we have. The kind of faith that would cause us to radically transform how we live our lives. 
The answer isn't more works or better works. The answer is a new kind of faith. And so what are these works going to look like? How, how do you know if you have saving faith? What kind of works would be there? Well, that's an endless list. But just think about what we've already learned in the book of James thus far. That this kind of saving faith helps us stay steadfast through trials. That's what we talked about in week one in the first part of chapter one. Saving faith would lead to someone like we read about at the end of chapter one. Someone who's not only steadfast, but that they read God's word and it transforms who they are. That God's word, that mirror, is a part of who they are. That saving faith, like we talked about last week, looks like someone who shows mercy rather than judgment. And so I want to give this moment to you. I want this moment to be our gift to you. To make you just stop and think. What kind of faith do you have? Is it a faith that impacts your life? That changes who you are? That changes how you live? If the answer is no, then you need a different kind of faith. And the most loving and gracious thing we could do as a church is to just tell you the truth, just like James does. He doesn't hold back. He just says it like it is. And to give you that moment to recognize that something's got to change. And this could be your moment. This could be your moment that you give everything over to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we don't want to just be religious people. We don't want to just be people who do good things because we think that somehow that's going to earn us a place in heaven or a earn us favor with you. We don't want to be people who just go through the motions, who go to church because that's what we're supposed to do or because we, we think you'll be impressed by that. Lord, we want to be people that the good works we do are an outflow of a transformed heart and a transformed life. Lord Jesus, we want to give everything to you. We don't want to just believe information about you. We want to wholly and fully trust you. We want to give you every part of our lives. We want a kind of faith that leads us to go all in, not just test the waters. Jesus, would you give us that kind of faith here this morning? Would you give us the courage to ask hard questions of ourselves and, and the honesty that we need to, to be real about where we are? And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who has not come to the place of trusting you, would this be that moment, that moment that they give everything to you to fully trust you, to embrace that saving faith. Lord, we love you.